Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran's one of our special, special pods. I mean, other people would have come up with a Valentine's Week special. No, why would we? We're not going to do that sort of thing. We come up with a really interesting interview. Uh, it, it behoves me, Kieran, to ask how you are. How was your, how was your Valentine's night? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I know the answer because we spent it together. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, in, a, in a romantic, a romantic hotel in Liverpool. Yeah, so that's where you were, and I was in Norbury. So it was even less romantic than it sounded. <laughs> Our interview today, though, Kieran, Manchester is a, a, a city that you love very much. It's a city that you know a lot about. And Manchester City is a club you've seen many times back in the day. Um, and this interview is with the former chairman of Manchester City, David Bernstein, who took over in 1998, was chairman for five years before selling out to Tatsin Shinawatra. Um, and he has a book out on the 11th of March called We Were Really There, The Rebirth of Manchester City. And we spoke to him about the book. And sometimes, Kieran, I'm a little wary of doing an interview that is going to sound just like it's a, a plug for a book, but this interview was very far from that. It's a fascinating interview. Um, and this is what David Bernstein had to say. David, thank you so much for joining us. Before we talk a little more about the book and about your time as Manchester City, just explain to our listeners um, about your life outside football and how you came to be a lifelong Man City fan. Yeah, well, I was I was born in the north. I was born as born in St Helens, um, but left there uh, when I was very very young. But um, moving moving south uh, when I was a kid and growing up down here, I had a great feel for the north and my northern roots and so on. And uh, quite why I latched onto City as opposed to Liverpool, which is closer to St Helens, I'm not altogether sure. But I think a bit to do with the mystique of the stadium, main road being a holding the record crowd for mm. English club football of 84,000 odd um, the sky blue shirts I loved and so on but I became um, uh, you know, totally absorbed with City a long while ago in about 1954 um, just before the cup finals of 55 and 56 mm. um, and I've been, a, I've been a sort of a, a huge fan ever since I mean my career basically is I'm a chartered accountant I was in practice for quite a period of time <laughs> And then uh, moved into business, and I've had a whole string of chairmanships of companies ranging from Ted Baker to French Connection to Vanorama um, to Carluccio's and so on. Um, and uh, uh, when my, my football, involved in football, ran parallel with my business career for 20 years. Hmm. Yeah, we'll talk about the move away from Main Road later because that was actually, as an away fan, it's quite a scary place to go. But it was a, a proper, proper stadium. And that's uh, before we talk about your time at Man City and what's happened since. Just tell us how you came to be the chairman of Man City because it was Francis Lee you replaced, wasn't it? It was. It was indeed. Well, yeah, life's very strange. I was um, joint chief executive of the Pentland Group. That's uh, the Stephen Rubens company that uh, that owned Reebok shoes at one stage and so on and I, I, I moved from professional practice to Pentland 
And when I joined, um, my role was really strategic and um, trying to find companies to bring into the group and so on, and also sorting out problems. And we had a, a guy um, living in the north who had provided the personal guarantee for something, and I was sort of chasing him, but got quite pally with him. And he was very involved with sport and football and so on. And he said, you know, one day he said, I know you're a City fan. Um, I know Mike Summerby very well. He knows Francis Lee. And Franny's looking to make us take over the club. Would you be interested in talking to him? So I thought, oh, talk to Franny Lee. Of course I would. I'd be only too thrilled. So we set up a meeting. I met with him at a, at a hotel in, in Manchester. Um, and got on very well. I gave him some advice. I wrote him quite a long letter, financial advice, uh, which he didn't take up. And he went ahead with doing what he did uh, and found very quickly he was undercapitalized and under financial stress very, very quickly. And we kept in touch and he asked me to come on the board, which was, a, for me, as a lifelong fan, was, you, know, you can imagine it was a great privilege. Um, so that's the, way, that's the way it started. It was an introduction that led mm. to a meeting that, um, you know, led, led to him inviting me onto the board. And when you did take over from Francis Lee in 1998, what was the mood like around the club at that time? Was it, was it purely survival or was it, right, we have to wake this sleeping giant? The mood was mutinous, dangerous, a bit vicious. Um, The club was in absolute free fall. Um, But all those things provided an opportunity. I I never owned the club. I had had uh, an interest, but quite a small one. But because people were very scared, I think, the, the fans were extremely upset at what was happening to the club. I was given carte blanche, in a way, by everybody, by the board, by the shareholders, um, to sort of get on with it. And it enabled me to really pursue a very radical course of change. And this is what the book is partly about. Mm. It's about cha- about changing an underperforming organisation um, and, and, and starting the route, the, the, the journey that has led to where the club is, where the club is now. So it was a, a difficult atmosphere, but I found that very stimulating and I felt it was a... Uh, you know, a fantastic opportunity uh, because it was quite a lot of low-hanging fruit as well as dealing with a lot of things that people had found impossible before, but I was determined there'd be no sort of sacred cows or, you know, everything was up for grabs. And, of course, we know about the finances of the current Man City club, but what were the finances like when you took over? They were, they were dreadful. It was very, it was very hand-to-mouth. Uh, we had no resources to speak of. The club's income was, if I remember correctly, was when I got on board, was about thirteen million pounds. One three. That was everything. Wow. That was gate money. You know the whole the whole lot. But at the time, if you if you, if you remember, but first of all, Main Road, which I loved as a stadium, it was in a in a bit of dilapidated state. Mm. We had we didn't have a proper training ground. We didn't have uh, a store, a club store. Already, you know, we had a. A store the size of my dining room table. It was, it was, it was tiny. <laughs> Frankly, the management of the club was in not good hands. I mean, the commercial management and so on. So, one way or another, the club was really been left behind in the you know the early the early twentieth century. It was mm. years out of date. And compared to Man United, of course, who were flourishing at the time, you know, we were just <laughs> we were just eons behind them. I was particularly intrigued about the decision you took straight away to renovate the boardroom and the photograph of the crying child. Tell us about those. 
Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I, I believe that in making these sorts of changes, and I think, you know, I think frankly, government can learn a bit about this. Uh, some of the things you need to do need to be real and hard and, you know, major sort of... But other things need to be symbolic. You know, symbolism counts for a lot. And and I I, I felt that a, a club boardroom was important. It has a mystique about it. You know, I think the fans like to feel the club's being properly run and a boardroom was where things happen, where big decisions are made. And also, frankly, you know, when you entertain people at the ground, say the bank manager or anybody else, they came into your boardroom and, oh boy, whoever it was was quite impressed to be in the boardroom of Manchester City. Mm. So we reinstated the boardroom, bought up a beautiful boardroom table that was languishing in a cellar somewhere. Uh, and when we got relegated, uh, about three months after I became chairman, to the third level of English football, for the first time in our, our history, um, at Stoke City, where we actually won 5-2, but, but got relegated, there was a young man, um, he, must, he must have been then about 13 or so, and he was caught on, on camera, hand, um, head in his hands, crying his eyes out. And I got that, the original of that photo for the Manchester Evening News, I had it framed, put in the boardroom, and said to our board, this boy is never going to cry again like that. You know, we are going to look after him, and we're going to look after the fans, and this is not going to happen again. Mm. And uh, that was that was, that was there right through my chairmanship. And, uh, you know, he, he has never, I mean, he, he actually got in touch with me not long ago. He's now, he's now in his 30s. <laughs> um, and he says, you never, never forgot that day, and he's never cried about a football match since. I know. I looked him up. His name is Leighton Cobbett. Leighton Cobbett, absolutely. Yes, and he's, I believe he sent you a message for you. You had a, a, a an important birthday, birthday race. Yes, I did. Talking about that relegation to the um, what was Division Two then, despite everything that City have achieved recently, I still know some fans, some old older City fans, who who will tell you that their favourite game was that playoff final against Gillingham. Absolutely, and I, I believe. You're of the of a similar mind because it was incredibly. Without I would go. That is the most important game of the club's history, uh, because um, we were working hard. We were doing the right things. That 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 season has started. Joe Ward become manager, but it started quite poorly. We were sort of struggling a bit, and it was difficult to understand why. I felt we did the right things. We were building up a decent team, and it wasn't quite working. And at Christmas, um, we beat Stoke City. Having from come again from behind, and from then on, the whole momentum started to change. Um, we had a great run, but we were too far behind to go up automatically. Got to the playoff semi-finals, beat Wigan just, only just, and then played Gillingham with the final. And um, it was the most extraordinary match, as you will know. Two down, mm. approaching injury time, and uh, yet we won it. Um, uh, had we not won that game, I think the the momentum and the credibility that we're beginning to develop would have would have fallen away. And one of the big implications possibly would have been that the support we had for the new stadium, yeah. including from Sport England and the Man City Council, um, they, it might have fallen away. They might have felt that we were just too far behind to be able to put sort of pullback. So if we, if, no, no, no Wimber Gillingham, no new stadium, and there's no new stadium, there's no Abu Dhabi investors coming in a few years later. So mm. I think that game, I know there's other huge games, of course, including when we won the, when the um, Premier League for the first time. But this was vital. And without this, the other stuff doesn't happen, I don't think. I, I knew that Paul Dickhoff had scored the equaliser. 
but my memory had obliterated the fact that Terry Herlock used to Kevin, play for Kevin, Kevin, Kevin Herlock. Kevin, yeah, played used to play for Man City. It's like, I mean, it's yeah. incredible to compare those two teams. And talking about that first time you won the Premier League, were, were you there for the Aguero moment? No, I wasn't. I wasn't. Oh, I, was, I, was, I watched on television, but I wasn't there. Uh, well, let's, let's talk about the stadium. We, we've talked a lot on the pod, uh, David, about the West Ham deal with the London Stadium because um, it agitates most of our listeners to a, a, a great degree. <laughs> yes. But your your deal for the Etihad was pretty nifty, wasn't it? How did that deal come about? And were there any was there anyone else interested in in taking it? Was, it was very, if I may say, it was very nifty, and I think we played a difficult hand uh, really well. Basically. Um, the Commonwealth Games was fixed to be in Manchester. The powers that be had a choice of a temporary stadium and a, probably a bit of a second-class event or a really top-class permanent stadium. But if they're going to have that, they needed a long-term occupant. A long-term. <laughs> and frankly, there was nobody else. Uh, rugby league clubs and whatever else could not possibly get the attendances that justify a stadium of that size. So we took a really... Yeah, in a, in a way, we didn't have a great hand to play, but we took a very tough line. And we said, look, yes, we're prepared to do this. In fact, we're very pleased to do this, but it's got to be a blue stadium. It's got to be fit for our fans. There'll be no athletics track afterwards. It can't be um, on one of those stadiums which are fixed between athletics and football. It's got to be a, a specialist full-time football stadium. Um, uh, and... Um, and we will not pay any, we don't, we argued, and it was accepted that Main Road gave us a 34,000 capacity, and therefore we should only pay uh, a rental or whatever based upon attendances over 34,000. And we got, that, we got that argument accepted. So we ended up with a, a wonderful new stadium. It, it, the, the total cost was, I think, uh, of 150 million. Yeah, yeah, 150 which million. We only paid about 10 million ourselves. And, the city council or Sport England or whoever Mm. paid the rest Uh, and we had a rental arrangement which frankly was extremely favourable to the extent that we we were playing away to Newcastle um, around about that time and I went to their boardroom and Sir John Hall came up to me very aggrieved and said David, David, you said there must be something funny going on in Manchester with this deal (laughs) nothing funny at all just good Mm. negotiation I'd, I'd like to bring Kieran in here briefly about the, the stadium, if you don't mind, David, because Kieran um, loves the city of Manchester and has spent uh, a lot of his time there. But you know, the the stadium has been fantastic for the city, Kieran, hasn't it? I mean, it really helped regenerate and redevelop an area an area of, of economic hardship, Kieran, didn't it? Yeah, East East Manchester isn't in a great condition historically, um, and setting up the campus and being able to provide jobs, opportunities, education, health. If these things are important, it doesn't matter whether it was Manchester City or Manchester United it's the, or Liverpool or Everton or whatever the club is, I think it does show that football can make a real positive impact um, socially as Absolutely. well as yeah. the excitement that it, it gives to us as fans. It's also, I have to say, it's a great place to go as a broadcaster. I loved doing Match of the Day too from there because they were the friendliest. They had this wonderful press secretary called Rose, and the most brilliant and the food was found. I remember going there with Ricky Hatton once. It was just <clears throat> the most astonishing thing.
Before we, we talk about what's happened to Manchester City recently, David, in the, the press release for the book, uh, and I didn't get the book in time to read the full book, but in the press release talks about Wimbledon and Glasgow Rangers being interested in Man City at one time. What, what were the circumstances well, of that? Well, well, yes, there was a bit of, I suppose, opportunism. I think you know, people saw that here was Manchester City struggling, a great, a great club with a great history, but really in trouble. Uh, but it still had the fan base, you know, and was fundamentally a great institution. Uh, in the case of Wimbledon, they sort of thought they could maybe work out a, I suppose, like a reverse takeover, where they would they would inject themselves into City. Uh, they they were the Premier League at the time, so yeah. that City would get the Premier League status that they'd lost, um, albeit in a sort of a, um, a merged. Uh, for but it wouldn't be about the Man City that we we knew anyway. I mean, I knew immediately this was a, a recipe for disaster, and uh, I would be I would be po- quite quite properly stoned um, <laughs> if I ever, ever even thought about it. So that got dismissed very quickly. The more serious approach was from David Murray at um, Rangers, who I think felt that they could take a stake, or I don't know whether it was to acquire the club completely or take a. A sizable stake, which I think, being in Scotland, they they could do that within the rules. Um, I, I wasn't keen on that either, really. Although, although we, we gave that, we had to felt duty bound to give it some consideration. I met with David Murray in in in, in uh, Glasgow, but um, it fell away pretty quickly. And I think it fell away because we really felt we could turn this around ourselves. And what we did not want to do is is dilute the club and dilute its history in any way at all. We wanted to keep it, you know, pure and proper and as an independent club. I'm, I'm a very proud Londoner, David, but I almost admire the optimism of somebody at Wimbledon going, I don't think Man City will mind if, we, if they get taken over by a lot. I think they'll be, yeah, exactly, they'll exactly. be fine with that. We'll change the kit. We'll change well, the nickname. There's a story that you talk about. You talk about sort of people getting strange ideas. There's a story in the book, it's a, I'll tell you briefly, um, that we had, we had a player, I think it was, oh, comes, it was... Um, I've got I've got a player for a moment. Um, Mark it wasn't maybe Mark Kennedy. Anyway, we had an approach for Mark Goldberg at Crystal Palace. So Mark mm-hmm. had made a lot of money very quickly and um, lost lost it just as quickly. Lost it. I will understand this story. So he asked, uh, "Yeah, will I meet him in a hotel in London?" I get to the hotel. He rolls up with his I think it was his Rolls Royce, leaving mm-hmm. outside the hotel on a double yellow line. <laughs> uh, comes comes in and basically the, the, the discussion goes like this. I say, look, he's a great. I say, look, he's a great player. Um, I was looking to I was looking to get about six hundred thousand for this player, and I say to Mark, Mark, you know, I think there's a yeah, he's a really good player, but we don't really want to sell him. But you know, for eight hundred thousand, we do the deal. He bangs the table and said, I'll give you a million. <laughs> Yeah. Now, I asked for, for 800,000, I'm expecting 600,000, but he gives me a million. Now, how can you explain that? You can spend only by ego and getting cowed away. You wanted to show me you want a great sort of, you know, and it's a bit like a bit like Kevin Keegan used to say to me, the difference between you and me, Chairman, is I like to go through the front door. Meaning <laughs> he'd like to, he'd like to <laughs> slap a check on the table and don't fuck around. 
you know, you like to go through the back door, you said, which I, <laughs> I knew what he meant. <laughs> yeah, well, a I'm, different approach. Anyway, people I'm, lose their heads I'm, in football. That's the, that's the point, I think. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a Palace fan, and what you just said explains quite a lot as to why we ended up in administration <laughs> at the that's end of Mark. I mean, Mark Goldberg is, is absolutely, he's a charming man. He's actually very interesting now, the way he talks about how he behaved at the time, right. but that doesn't, it doesn't surprise me at all. And talking of, of players and controversy about players, it, in the excitement of City's recent history and their new ownership, we tend to forget about the first overseas owner, which is, of course, the former Thai Prime Minister, Taksin Shinawatra. Indeed. Is it true that you're, the ultimate cause of the, the sale to him was the Robbie Fowler transfer? It was slightly more complicated than that. The, the reason for my leaving the club was, a, 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 was I was. I mean, at the end, I mean, I was. I was signed for something that I absolutely adored. It was a lifetime highlight, uh, but because of a number of things, of which the Robbie Fowler transfer was one, a, a, a scenario where the my board had been absolutely together. We we had a really tight, disciplined. You know, I was very proud of what we'd done, but it began to fragment. Bit by sort of bit by bit, um, and uh, what the Robbie Fowler deal, which um, uh, my view was, so having seen his uh, his uh, medical file, um, that he was unlikely ever to play to the level he'd played at before, and that we could probably have, could have got him on a pay by play basis, uh, but in the end, because of Kevin, what Kevin wanted, and my directors at the end. Sided with Kevin, we paid quite a lot of money for him, and it didn't it, it didn't go very well. Um, that led to my leaving the club. That and some other things. The result of that, and I was proved to be completely right, was the club began to be very overstretched again. The disciplines that we'd had began to disappear. Um, and John Wall and David Makin, who'd been great backers, they'd be the, mm. the people who provided most of the money. Um, and have been great partners for a while. They, their own company, JD Sports, wasn't doing very well at the time, so they were under great pressure, and they got pushed into a sale. And the sale was to someone I thought was totally unsuitable. It was not a fit and proper person. Um, I sort of played with trying to block the deal. I could have possibly bought Sky, Sky Television's holding in the city, about 10%, but in the end, I thought this is, this is not the thing to do. I'll be perceived as like an aggrieved chairman and, mm. you know, I didn't want all that, so I didn't do anything, and it got into his hands. And in the end, he 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 um, actually um, the various promises and uh, things he'd made in the prospectus, none of them were actually followed through. And in the end, he made a very good turn on the uh, the club, selling it to the Abu Dhabi people, which that money should have been made by the original shareholders, which were the city fans. Among others, we had two thousand fans who were shareholders, who in the mm. end sold to Shinawatra at, at an undervalue. It got squeezed mm. out, um, which I was really horrified about, but you know, it was too late that I couldn't really think about it. Early on in the interview, David, you mentioned the amount of money Man City were making in, in 1998. What do you make of the finances of the Premier League now? Are they sustainable? Well, I think the finances of the Premier League itself are Probably sustainable, yes. But the what's not sustainable is the rest of the way the state of the rest of football, rest of football is in. Uh, you know, and what is happening? This is why we need a regulator. This is why 
I, I really hope that the regulator's mandate will include an overview on the financial side of the wider, the wider side of football, is that the, this gap between the Premier League and the West is so huge that and the stresses it's putting on clubs in the Championship and below are so great that it's almost impossible to have a healthy pyramid, let's call it. The top mm. of the pyramid may be okay, but the foundations are very, very weak. Um, and there's something here which is not really sustainable. So it's not so much the Premier League I'm concerned about, it's the rest of the game. Well, we'll talk briefly about the independent regulator in a moment, if we can. So I realise we have time constraints. But talking of the pyramid, you, you, you were involved in the review of National League funding, weren't you? Just um, About which you were quite scathing. Do you think the problem is that this country simply isn't big enough to sustain five, five and a half full-time leagues now? Well, that's a good, that's a good question. Do I, do I think it's not? I think it, I think it probably... I think if there was a more more sustainable uh, model of financing between the Premier League and the rest of football, if, for example, we did away with parachute payments, if we had mandatory relegation clauses in players' contracts, because that you you know if you're if you're a business if you're if you're if you're if you're a business and you're turning over twenty million pounds a year and your wages bill is £12 million, and then your income halves to £10 million, and your wages bill stays at £12 million, you're going to be in serious trouble. Applies mm. to any business. And that's what's happening in football. So the sensible solution, to my mind, is that you uh, have mandatory relegation clauses. So if a club goes down, the wages in players' contracts go down accordingly. That would enable you to scrap the parachute payment thing, which would enable you to have a more a much better model of distribution of funding through, throughout, throughout the game. Mm. So, the, I mean, there's, there's, there's more to it than that, but there's two or three examples of things I think we could do, and I hope a regulator might influence in due course to make the rest of the game more sustainable. If, if that was the case, I don't necessarily think there are more clubs than there need be, as long as the clubs cut their cloths you know, sensibly. Mm. You know, a club, a club only got five billion pounds of income. Well, it can't afford to have more than two and a half billion pounds or so of, of wages. Yeah, you you clearly sound as though you're a fan of the regulator. Tell us about the manifesto group, which was uh, in part um, uh, the, the reason we we hopefully will be getting a regulator. Well, well, I, I um, you know, I was very concerned about all this, and I spoke. I'm, I'm pretty close to David Davis. You remember David Davis, who was yep. uh, very involved with the with the football association. A really, really, really good bloke. And we de we decided that uh, we needed to try and get across a, a, a group of people with no non political, but with people of influence. So we managed to get to the same group: Helen Grant, who was ex Conservative Sports Minister, and Gary Neville, who's certainly not a Conservative. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You know, with with Andy Burnham and with Lord Mervyn King, ex governor of the Bank of England, um, right. together, and we produced this manifesto. Which I'm very happy to send to you um, if you'd like to read it. Yeah. It's a base a thing document, and that I think has got the ball rolling and led on to the final ed review and so on, and now is going to lead uh, to this um, Act of Parliament. I hope. Um, I, I do have a concern um, that the regulators' powers will not sufficiently include a sort of financial involvement we just talked about because I think that is absolutely crucial if you don't get the financial side right the rest won't be right can't mm. be 
And I think that's at the heart of all this. So we'll see what, you know, this country seems to live on compromise to a very great extent. And sometimes, you know, too much compromise can uh, produce poor results. I'm hoping that won't be the case here. Mm. Two more questions for you, David. I'm very much looking forward to reading the book properly. Did you enjoy writing it? Or was there a sense when you were writing it, it's like, crikey, football has changed so much in such a short space of time, hasn't it? No, I loved I loved writing it, and, and I brought back a lot of wonderful memories. I got, I, I mean, I had I had um, drawers full of papers. I kept, I kept everything. I got board minutes and heaven knows what that no one else had got access to. So I think the book has got a lot of very interesting original information um, in it. But I really enjoyed um, writing. I, did, I I was helped by Tim Rich, who was really great and uh, helped me a, a, a lot. He's a he's a professional writer, which which I'm not, but but it brought back a lot of a lot of great memories. And I think I think it's a really good story there, both with a lot of interesting sort of events and things that happened during that five years as chair, um, plus a bit of a lesson in I say in changing a, an organisation that's failing. And I think it shows the need for radical thinking. You know, and I, you know, I don't want to get, get ahead of myself, but I think this country needs a bit of radical thinking somewhere in, in many areas. Mm. You know, we're we're sort of compromising too much. We're not really looking at at, at changing things sufficiently, sufficiently strong. This, I think, we did that. I think Manchester is a very good example of changing something that intrinsically was strong, had always had wonderful fans, and uh, valued the relationship with the fans enormously. Um, and I, yeah, when we used to talk on the board, I used to say, remember we're Manchester City Football Club, club. Well, what is a club? You know, an association of people of common interests, a common purpose, who work together and respect each other, and so on. And that's the way we try to run things. You strike me on brief acquaintance as rather a modest man, David. So this might be a difficult question for you to answer this last one. Do you think you get enough credit for starting the club's transformation from what? Uh, it's described variously in the book as a 19th century business and a chaotic mess. So you were, you were the start of, of bringing the club out of that. Do you think your name is mentioned enough when people talk well, about I, the I, change? Enough, but I, I think people who were around at the time, um, and now, of course, this is 20 years ago, so, so yeah, it's people over, over 30 or over 35. I think a lot of City fans remember very clearly what happened in the situation. In fact, in Georgia, once all recovery started, the, you know, the road from the road up, the journey is always the way often more exciting than when you actually arrive anywhere. As uh, you know, mm. for example, the Boris Becker story would tell you that you know, the, when you get there, it can be very difficult. Um, and I think people who were around at the time do remember it. I lot of, I mean, I ever made a city fan of um, you know the right sort of age who was around. They are very um, you know very lovely and supporting and remembering things. But this book is addressed a bit to younger fans who you know, won't remember those things and probably think, well, the recovery started with the Abu Dhabi takeover. Mm. And of course, the Abu Dhabi takeover has been fantastic and has accelerated things. Without their money and support, this never would have happened. But it wouldn't have started without, I think, what we, what we did. So, mm. no, listen, I'm not looking for... You know, I'm looking for I've, I've had plenty of, plenty of dividends out of this and fun out of this and... Uh, yeah, it was a great privilege to be to have been involved. Yeah, I always panic slightly when people say the, the Boris Becker story. And I was like, we may have to stop you there. <laughs> it's, um, unfortunately, we do have to stop here, David. It's been a, a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Um, uh, really enjoyed the insight and the information that you've given us. Um, 
Um, Thanks, we, and if you want to, if you want to follow up at any time, I'm you know I'm happy. But in fact, when you read the book, if you want to follow through again, I'm very happy to do so. I, I think we would love to talk to you again and, and go into more detail about the manifesto group in particular. So, okay. um, yeah, thank you very much, David. It's been a pleasure. Great pleasure. Good to speak to you. Kieran, you know, normally I would say, well, let's talk about his view on parachute payments. Let's talk about David's view on mandatory relegation clauses. But the most interesting thing there, which I don't think either of us knew, was the fact that during his tenure as, as Man City chairman, before the rebirth of that club, both Wimbledon and Rangers of the Glasgow persuasion talked about potential mergers or buying large amounts of shares. Yes, and I think in terms of Wimbledon, we were aware that Sam Herman was would quite happily take Wimbledon anywhere that had a, a bigger fan base. Um, so you can sort of understand that because he, he tried it in Dublin and, and so on. Um, the Rangers story was spectacular i mean okay, you know okay they, they they're both known for light blue shirts but that's about as far as it's gone and could have this been a, a sort of reverse takeover to somehow allow rangers to be playing in the premier league um or getting into english football it was it really took me aback but uh you know clearly it, it didn't get that far but the more and more you do read about uh, some of the issues taking place in the EFL in you know, the late 90s here and, and the early 2000s, especially with the collapse of ITV Digital. I think it, it was very serious in terms of inviting Celtic and Rangers. Um, but this particular story is one I've, I've never yeah. been familiar with. Also interesting as well, Kieran, I thought, and uh, one of the stories is sort of fairly well rehearsed in that Paul Dickov arguably is responsible for what happened City because David was very honest and said the the stadium deal probably wouldn't have happened if uh, they weren't promoted and is also honest enough to say that that deal basically he did a he out West Ham and West Ham but also uh, what I found very interesting is he was slightly cagey about the circumstances in which he took over from from Francis Lee uh, but was. Quite well, not happy, but admitted that he was reluctant to sell the club to the person who finally did take it over, in, as in Taxi Chinamatra. And as we said in the interview, I think with with everything that's happened to Man City in recent years, we it's too easy to forget that that brief period at mm. Taxi Chinamatra, who did kind of start the huge investment process, didn't he? He did until he ran out of money. Yeah. Whereas what we've seen with Abu Dhabi United is. First of all, a huge injection of cash, but then a long-term plan. Uh, Shinomatra um, always seemed to be looking for an exit route as soon as he got to the club, and he enjoyed the trappings of of fame that being associated with Manchester City bought, which we've not seen from the Abu Dhabi owners. They've kept a much lower profile. Yeah. Uh, so that book, um, David Bernstein's book, We Were Really There, The Rebirth of Manchester City, uh, a reference, of course, to the you know, City fans in the early years with their posters and their songs, We're Not Really Here, uh, is available on the 11th of March. As we said, I've, I've looked at uh, 
extracts from it. It's very good. Thank you to everyone who has donated to Pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod as well, that'd be very kind of you. It will get you access to our chat community and our regular quizzes, and you can do that by going to patreon.com, Price of Football. If you've got a question you'd like answered on our regular Monday show, then email us at questions at priceoffootball.com, and you can go to the same website if you'd like to buy our book or a Price of Football t-shirt. We will be back on Monday with questions. Bye-bye. Bye. The Price of Football. Buy some football.